from the Alexandrian studios of PBS 39 at the PPNL Public Media Center in Bethlehem, PA. It's time for another literate episode of Chemical Free Horticultural Hijinks, You Bet Your Garden. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. How did Americans become so obsessed with the perfect lawn that they douse their property with poisons? What did the original forest canopy of America look like and what happened to it? And how did pesticides become so popular despite their lack of effect on insect pests? On today's show, we'll discuss three books that answer those questions and announce another book giveaway. Otherwise, it's a fabulous phone call show, Cats and Kittens. That means we'll take that heap and helping of your telecommunicated questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and perennially positive pontifications. So keep your eyes and or ears right here, because it's all coming up faster than page turners about pines and pesticides right after this. Welcome to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from PBS 39 in beautiful Bethlehem, PA. I'm your host, beautiful Mike McGrath. How did Americans become so obsessed with the perfect lawn that they douse their property with poisons? What did the original forest canopy of America look like and what happened to it? And how did pesticides become so popular despite their lack of effect on insect pests? Later on, when we visit the question of the week, we'll discuss three books that try to answer those questions and give us some perspective on how we got to this place in our environment. Otherwise, it's a fabulous phone call show, Cats and Kittens. That means we're going to take your heap and helping at 833-727-9588. Amelia, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi. Hello, Amelia. How you doing? I'm fine. Busy in uh, the garden. And where is Amelia busy? Uh, why missing Pennsylvania? Oh, uh, right near Reading, PA. That's right. And the home of the brilliant comic book artist Jim Steranko. Um, right. And I believe where Taylor Smith uh, spent her first right. 12 years. Yeah. Very interesting community, why I'm missing. All right, what can we do for Amelia in why I'm missing? I have a question about the uh, corn gluten products. Sure. Mike. The question is, I still haven't received uh, any order, and I'm wondering if it's too late to apply. My garden here is mostly perennials, and I like, I have in the past put down the corn gluten product down to cut down on weeding. Then I've applied uh, a thin layer of mulch. Okay. And it seems to work, but since uh, it's getting later already in the season. I'm just wondering if I got the product in the next three weeks or so, would it make a difference? Would it be effective if I applied it now? Uh, I think so in your situation because you're not battling crabgrass no. in flower beds. And the weeds that are in the flower beds, the dormant weed seeds, they're going to have uh, a germination date from a month ago to the first freeze in the fall. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, applied at the correct rate, corn gluten meal is always going to inhibit the germination of some weed seeds. Uh And the combination of the mulch on top, uh, certainly that's all, uh, and you said you use compost. Yes. Do you Not make- exclusively. I like the licorice root mulch. I've heard you kind of denigrate it yeah. previously, but I think it's a very effective product, and I like it and very you like, much. You and like it the, looks nice, You like too, the smell. Not the bits and pieces of scraps. Right. No, the licorice root mulch is a single, single plant mulch. Uh, it's interesting when we get true licorice, Uh, flavor in candies or whatever, that comes from a giant root of a plant that's grown in the tropics, and they press the root, you know, for its essential oil almost to get the the anise flavoring out of it. But it's my understanding that there is an enormous amount of the root left behind after this. And it's also my understanding that all of the licorice processed in this country is processed at a port in New Jersey. So it is 
in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, uh, lower state New York, areas like that, it, it's pretty easy to find at garden centers, but I don't think you're going to find licorice root mulch on the, on the West Coast or down South or in the Midwest or anything like that. Uh, but I, I have to, you know, it is a wood mulch, but if you're not using it near a house or a car and it's not causing any fungal problems, you go right ahead. I never argue with success. Okay. Thank you very much. But I'll tell you what. It's hard to find, even in Berks County. Yeah, because I think you're kind of a little bit on the outskirts. As you would get further to the Philadelphia area, I think it would become more available. But, you know, I believe it is all packaged and marketed. by Well, the, the only a nursery in Berks County that I know of that handles it told me last year they thought the company might be going out of business, and that's very concerning to me. That does happen. That happened with the cocoa shell mulch mm -hmm. um, that we got from Hershey's, which, was, uh, which is, by the way, if you ever find cocoa hull mulch, that's a perfect mulch. That's not so much of a wood product, and your whole garden smells like chocolate. Mm -hmm. But, but it blows away, too. <laughs> does it? I've, I've never used it personally. Uh, okay. If you well, want to, no, no. Thank if, you very much. If you want to find the truth about the licorice root mulch, just if you have an old bag or something, you remember the company's name, or, uh -huh. or just licorice root mulch, go online, find the official website of that company, and if they are still in business, there should be a, a click on there to find your local retailer. Thank you very much. All right, Amelia. Good luck. Thank you. Bye. 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 833-727-9588. Alan, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. Hello, Alan. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm just peachy. All right. And where is Alan Peachy? I am peachy in Cream Ridge, New Jersey. Cream Ridge, New Jersey. Now, orient me there. Or, or I should say, since it's in New Jersey, what exit? Um, we are in the land of farms and military bases at the edge of the Pine Barrens. Oh, okay. Very interesting ecosystem there in the Pine Barrens. Uh, just kind of the opposite of the Jersey Shore. All right. Yes. Well, what can we do for Alan in um, Cream Ridge? I have an oak tree growing in my kitchen. And how it got there... Is, is that um, a good thing, Alan? <laughs> I think so. I think it is. Um, it seems to be very happy there, and the way it got there was I, I serviced church organs, and I visited a quaint old church in the Atlantic Highlands where I noticed massive trees that were dropping very large acorns all over the place, but they didn't look like oak trees. They had leaves like chestnut trees. So I scooped some up and tried to germinate them, and I was successful at germinating it. That was about three years ago, and I, I put it in a, a flower pot on my windowsill um, where it has more or less thrived, and it's thriving very much. This spring, it sprouted five enormous leaves, but my dilemma is I don't know what to do with it at this point. Should I plant it in the ground? Because it is acclimated to being indoors. It doesn't drop its leaves in the winter. Huh. Or should I turn it into a bonsai? Oh, well, you know, boy, you have... Actually, I believe that an oak tree, that would be considered an outdoor bonsai at any rate. Uh, those are the really difficult ones where they have to be outside to get a chilling period. And, um, you know, uh, they need to be protected. It's, it's beyond me. The bonsai sounds like a great idea. How, how many years has it been in your little pot? About three years. Well, this Maybe is a, two and a half. It survived two winters. This is about the time that you would want to start training it with the copper wire and the selective pruning. So this would not be a bad time for you to read a book on bonsai or, um, let's see, you're in Cream Ridge. Where, where, did these, where were these trees, again, very specifically? In the Atlantic Highlands in Navasink. In, in, help me out. Where are we? Okay. If you know where Sandy Hook is. Okay. It's just inland from there. Okay. So, relative, woods. Relatively local to you. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, I don't, uh, I don't know what kind of oaks 
that you had, you know, if they were live oaks, which look again very different, live oaks do drop their leaves, but not till the spring. And and some oak trees are notorious. Actually, almost all oak trees are notorious for holding on to their leaves longer. Than, may, I, may I interrupt? Yeah, I've identified it as a chestnut oak. Chestnut oak. Okay. Yes. Very interesting. Um, okay, so here's your two options. It would be time to get it acclimated to go outdoors, but not now. And and it's getting enough light in your windowsill? It's not spindly or anything like that? No. Um, it's a southwest-facing window. Um, I don't know how many hours of direct sunlight it gets a day, but at least uh, at this time of year, uh, four or five. Okay. And how big is the pot? Um, you know, pots tend to be the same diameter as they are height How, what would you ask it's a, it's a six inch pot but i only have it about three quarters full of uh soil and it's it's potting soil too right how come that's what i germinated the seeds in. oh no 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 but <laughs> why only halfway uh I, I honestly don't recall why i only filled it that much okay what i would do again especially because it sounds like this thing is is really happy I would get out some newspaper, I would lay the pot on its side, I would gently tug out the roots of the plant, you know, the whole plant with the roots. I would put some more potting soil on the bottom, but I would keep the tree level with the top of the soil. And have you ever fed it, or did this potting soil come with some fertilizer in it already? No, I've never fed it. And, um, you know, I, I, I pay attention to your suggestions. There's no fertilizer in the soil. Excellent. Excellent. If you have access to some corn gluten meal, um, that would be great to dust around the top. Otherwise, um, incorporate some compost down into the bottom. I just want to make sure the roots don't get too root bound in case you decide to take this thing outside, which if you were going to do it, we would take it outside in its pot around mid-August in your environment. And then we would leave it sit out in the pot in dappled sunlight until around September. And then we would find a really good spot for this thing to grow. And we would plant it in the ground, being very careful that that soil did not dry out for any length of time over the next year. And obviously you, you saw the full size of these trees, the finished size, right? Yes, so, they're, they're enormous. Right. Do you have a place where this tree can can grow and fill out? Or, you know, I got I got the sense that maybe you're enamored of this bonsai idea. Uh, I, actually, no, I'm not. No, because <laughs> I've learned a little bit about bonsai and that if you start out with 100 plants and you do the bonsai treatment on them, you uh, 90 of them will, will die and get about 10 percent. And I don't want to kill it. Well, yeah, you can't be uh, a cowardly bonsai grower. Uh, the best I ever had on my show, he belonged to a specific society that you could not join until you killed your hundredth plant. So, um, uh, but uh, uh, if you want to plant it outside, give it a lot of room. Um, it sounds it sounds healthy, and I can't see any reason why it wouldn't be there. Perhaps for generations to come. Your biggest job would be to make sure you identify it in a way that's not going to decay over the next 10, 20 years. Well, that's my goal. I want my great-grandchild to be able to stand there and look at a 100-foot tree and say my grandfather, great-grandfather planted that. From seed. From seed. Yeah. yeah, make sure you know that. Now, before we got started, you said you were actually working on an yes. or a church organ right now? Yes, I, I am uh, here working on a, a church organ in a rather large church. Can, can we have a couple of notes? I'll, I'll, I'll play you a chord. Uh, hold on. How's that? I want to go host a midnight movie right now. I want to introduce Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein with that playing in the background. Well, uh, unfortunately, it's not a Wurlitzer. <laughs> All right. That's fabulous, Alan. All right. Well, thank you for that musical chord, and uh, thank you for your great idea here. Make sure you take good care of this puppy. The um, 
uh, when you dig the hole uh, to plant it, um, you, can, can, you can keep the potting soil that's around the roots, but don't add any other stuff to the soil. Refill the hole mostly with the soil you took out. Um, and then again, make sure it doesn't go any long stretches without being watered. After you get it in the ground, ideally you would take a hose over to it and let that hose just drip slowly like an annoying faucet for like four or five hours. And then every time we go a week without rain, you would repeat that. Because the biggest cause of plant death in general is overwatering, except for new trees, which die more often from watering neglect in the early stages where they're getting stabilized. Yes, will do. All right, good luck, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and announce that I will travel down D.C. way to appear at the Town Center Garden event in Reston, Virginia on Sunday, May 5th at 1 o'clock and 3. But don't go looking for all the details at the events section of our website just yet because we'll be right back with three books you can take to the beach and more of your beachy phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from WLVT, PBS 39 in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from WLVT, PBS 39 in beautiful Bethlehem, PA. I'm beautiful Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, we're going to look at some of my favorite books again. This time out, we're going to look at how pesticides became so prevalent in the battle against insects, why people are so obsessed with having a perfect lawn, and what the canopy of the American forest looked like over the centuries. Three great books. I'll tell you all about them after lots more of your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Barbara, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. How are you? I am just ducky, Barb. Thank you so much for asking. How are you? I'm well. And where is Barbara well? I'm well in Center City, Philadelphia. Oh, okay. Well, my stomping grounds then. Now we got to narrow it down. Where in Center City? In Queens Village. Oh, okay. Just, um, just off of South Street and before South Philly really gets rolling. Exactly. A very nice neighborhood. Also, very close to the Delaware, very close to the historic areas. And uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. And very close to a really big, wonderful community garden. Oh, okay. And what's the name of the garden? Um, Southwark Queen Village Community Garden. I was at the Southwark Garden when um, I was putting together the images for my Kitchen Garden A to Z book, which you may see behind me on the show sometimes. And Southwark was one of the uh, community gardens where we took some images of people community gardening. A wonderful, wonderful spot. Philadelphia, I believe, has more community gardens per square foot than any other urban area in the country, and it's something to be very proud of. Oh, and, and we really are. All right, what can I do for Barbara in Southwark? Well, 
um, last season, I was listening, I was driving and listening to your broadcast, and you were talking about your favorite tomato plant, and you described it as this indeterminate monster that gave wonderful tasting tomatoes and was very prolific, and since I was driving, I couldn't write the name down, and I'd love to get one and try it out, and... um, I, my question is, what, what was the name of this, this wonderful plant? Well, I have, um, I probably have a dozen favorite tomatoes, but you're talking about a big indeterminate heirloom that ripens up at the end of the season, right? Yes, and that would do well in a, a garden where we can't do very much rotation. Well, that, that is a whole different issue. Obviously, when there's verticillium wilt in the soil, you want to grow plants that have the letters V and F after their name if you can, because they've been shown to have some resistance to the soil-borne wilts, but most heirloom tomatoes don't. However, most heirloom tomatoes, these indeterminate, these 90, 95-day varieties, they grow so vigorously and so long you can lose the bottom part of the plant. The leaves can all turn yellow, and you'll still get fabulous tomatoes at the top. So there's we really well, don't... what I've been doing is I, I love Cherokee purples, so I've been buying Good. grafted Cherokee purples, which really work well. But I want to wanna buy, you know, a, a, just a big, vigorous, um, non-heirloom, preferably, and then some um, um, sun golds. Oh, okay. Sun golds are small tomatoes. They're very sweet. People like them. The big tomatoes I like, um, I grow it as Georgia Streak. It also has a number of different names. It may be the same tomato as Big Rainbow. um, And I have mostly seen it for sale, going back to the original name of both Marvel Striped and striped marvel that's what it was called in the seed catalogs at the turn of the century Uh but this is a big honking tomato that looks like it's going to be a yellow tomato until it gets fully dead ripe and then down on the hiney end down on where the blossom was a little red dot appears then that red dot spreads throughout the entire inside and outside of the tomatoes into this beautiful sunset and you get this incredibly complex mix of acid and sugar, plus so many tropical notes. You'll lose Ooh. count. And it is a, and it also looks amazing on the plate. It looks like you used food dye or something. <laughs> um, another favorite, really big, really tough heirloom that might do well in soil that doesn't get rotated is called black crim, K-R-I-M. This is one of the Russian heirlooms. I've also seen it sold as black prince and as simply black Russian. But you have to be careful. There are a number of different varieties of black crim out there. Um, The one that I grew years and years ago was a two pound tomato, Uh, huge fruits. And they would turn, you know, the way your Cherokee purples approach kind of black. Yeah, yeah. Black crim approaches a a hard-to-describe gray, dark gray, almost black. And that permeates through the tomato, of course. And the taste is naturally smoky. You will swear that somebody put this tomato in a wood smoker and gave it that flavor. Oh, my goodness. But I, this year, for the first time, I think I found my original seed again because I've been growing black crim every year, but I get six to eight ounce tomatoes from it. This year, I'm growing one that says one to two pounds. So if I can pull this off, I'll talk about it in plenty of time next year so people can get the seed for that. Um, um, a more modern tomato, and one that people in limited space are going to love, is called Tasmanian Red. And Tasmanian? Tasmanian, like the Tasmanian Devil. Uh-huh. 
Tasmanian Red, okay. And this is available from Renee, uh, Renee Shepard. She has a company called Renee Seeds out on the West Coast. Oh, yeah, I, I know them. She has been around forever. This is the most amazing tomatoes. My friends, when I said I, I wasn't sure if I was going to grow it this year, they all bullied me into starting it right away. The tomato plant itself will stop at about five feet tall. The color of the leaves is the darkest green I've ever seen on a tomato plant. And it produces huge numbers of one pound tomatoes. On this tiny compact bush style plant, you get full size tomatoes with incredible flavor and they just keep popping all season long. Oh boy, these sound like wonderful suggestions. But it also, I make a lot of sauce, so I'm always growing, um, I was going to say Bell Star. I haven't been able to find Bell Star seed for years and years. Um, but all sorts of paste tomatoes. I grow Amish paste, which is, oh, yes. you like that one? That's a yeah. paste tomato the size of a child's head sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And I'm trying to think. Oh, I've also grown striped Roman, which I really like. Right, right, the striped tomatoes. The striped tomatoes are wonderful because they have those alternating flavors. Uh, but you know, if you're going to buy grafted tomatoes, the variety you want grafted onto the rootstock that's resistant, it's totally limitless. You can even buy just the rootstock, and you can graft them yourselves. Tomatoes are probably the easiest plant to graft. Oh my goodness, maybe I'll try that. I noticed at least years ago, Johnny's Selected Seeds was selling the seeds for the rootstock, and I believe there are some companies that will just sell you the rootstock and, and directions for how to splice the tomato you want onto it. And one thing I want to add, if you are going to grow paste tomatoes, you got to include San Marzano or Super San Marzano. These are paste uh -huh. tomatoes that somehow seem to be even more Italian. Uh, uh -huh. to me, and they make a great sauce. Oh, these are some wonderful ideas. Thank you so much. All right. Well, good luck. I hope we're going to have a fabulous tomato season this year. We all well, need it. Well, my only problem now is picking one of those wonderful varieties, but thanks again. All right. My pleasure. You take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right. The number to call is 833-727-9588. Andrea, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. I enjoy your show. Oh, thank you so much, Andrea. Where are you? I'm in Edmond, Oklahoma. Just outside of Oklahoma City, right? That's right. That's right. It's raining today, so we feel pretty lucky. Oh, yeah, yeah. It can get awfully dry there. And, you know, and sometimes the wind blows, you know, just just slightly, <laughs> you know. We're looking forward to that more next month. Yes, you're right. <laughs> yeah. All right. What can we do for Andrea in Oklahoma? Oklahoma. Well, Mike, um, I've lived in a variety of locations, including Alabama and New Jersey and Florida. And last year, uh, when visiting my second son in Gainesville, we decided to make a trip to where we used to live in Florida, in St. Petersburg. Oh, beautiful. And the, oh, gorgeous. And we live near the water. Mm -hmm. And we had a number of trees there, and we were hoping to be able to find some of them still there. It had been 30 years since we had been there. And there were avocado trees, a kumquat tree, mm -hmm. tangerine. There was a Texas ruby red grapefruit tree. Oh, I bet and they were amazing. It was, it was a treat. It really was. It was wonderful. We also had a ponderosa lemon tree. Mm -hmm. So we drive up to the property, and we don't see any of those trees. It had been 30 years, and we expected a number of them would be gone. But we asked the owner if we might be able to walk around the property. He said, sure, showed us around. And lo and behold, on the ponderosa lemon tree was one lemon. Oh, seriously? And he saw me with my eyes looking big, and he said, would you like that lemon? And I said, oh, yes, please. So took it home, planted the seeds, and three of the five seeds have grown beautifully. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they grow very and, well from seed lemons. And I was delighted. So now I'm at the point, and three of them are varying heights. One is 12 inches, another is 10, another is 6. Right. And I kept a grow light on them um, mm -hmm. over the winter. Good. Uh, planted them in the organic soil, mm -hmm. fed them once a week with um, a seaweed fertilizer. That's nice. And... 
and they have just done beautifully. My, my question now is, what do I do with them? I want them to be able to grow. One of my sons has expressed an interest, the one in California, um, that he would like to grow one. Oh, okay. And, Where and in so California? What, he's just a little bit north of Los Angeles. He can do it. So what do I do to help them grow and, and do well until that one son wants to you know, plant it and then the son in uh, Florida is also interested? Well, so how said, do I get them there? You said they're a foot tall. That's pretty much the size yeah. that um, somebody in southern Florida or southern California or Arizona would put in the ground. Um, okay. That has to be gotten to him in good shape. Um, right. Were you thinking of shipping it? No, I'd probably drive it out. Okay. Uh, just make sure it's not exposed to the wind. Don't tie it to the roof or have it in the right. back of a pickup truck or something like that. Um, okay. You might want to take all three of them out. I was going to say that um, did you want the good news or the bad news? <laughs> Why don't you give me the bad news first? Well, the bad news is they can't survive an Oklahoma winter. And, yes, that I know. Yeah, and they're... Um, the good news is that I was going to send you back to live in St. Petersburg. So <laughs> I wish, you know, and then visit you during <laughs> spring training a lot. Um, what you have, um, lemons do come true from seed, but you remember how big that tree was. Yes. Yeah. And how yes, thorny that tree was. Yes, definitely. Yes. So you are growing what are called standard lemons. The ones okay. that people keep in their house over the winter and take outside in the summer have been grafted. Uh, typically, oh, okay. the variety known as the Meyer lemon has been grafted yeah. onto a dwarfing rootstock. So you get good-sized lemons, um, but the tree stays very small. Mm -hmm. Because your tree is not grafted, it's going to top out. What was the tree like when you found it? Um, down in Florida, about eight feet tall, something like that? Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. They top out at, at a decent size. The fruit is generally really pickable, so to speak. It, it's at a great mm -hmm. height. Um, but it will be that size before you're really going to get any fruit from it. And it will eventually hit a size where you can't move it in and out over the, yeah. the winter anymore. I know Oklahoma is southern. But we're talking about somewhere ideally uh, below the frost line or above, right. yeah, below the frost line where it never gets frosted. Above, so below. It may, you know. Yeah, it may be a bit before I can get them, you know, to each of my sons. How, oh, that's do, I fine. Best, that's how fine. do I best grow them so that they'll be in good shape? And do I need to prune them? No, 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 no. People want to do okay. too much. These plants know how to take care of themselves. What you okay. want to do... Um, you might be out of the risk of frost already, right? What, what are your nighttime yeah. temperatures like? Uh, we're in the 40s to 50s. When the nighttime temperatures are consistently in the 50s, you can take the trees outside. If you feel their containers might not be big enough, um, repot them back up into the next size pot using the same okay. kind of, quote, organic potting soil that you uh, used the first time. And okay. do this in the evening, not first thing in the morning, so that the plants okay. get to rest overnight before that burning Oklahoma sun hits them. And, yeah. and obviously, here's, here's proof that I've been to Oklahoma City many times, shelter them from the wind. Right, okay. So keep them outside all summer, and keep them out of the wind, but they can take full sun. Keep them well watered because they're in containers, and then... He can plant them spring or fall in California. Um, he could even okay. plant them in the winter, quote unquote, in California. Uh, not in the summer, though. Not in Southern California. You shouldn't plant okay. anything then. Got it. Okay. And then well, he'll thanks. send you lemons. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of them, I hope. They're yeah. delicious. And you yeah, can retire there. Yeah. Okay, Andrea. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your help, Mike. Have oh, a good my day. pleasure. We love our listeners in the Oklahoma City area. You guys are the best. Take care. Have a good one. You too. Bye bye. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and announce that I will appear once again at one of my favorite annual events, the Burlington County Earth Fair at Historic Smithville Park in East Hampton, New Jersey. This year's event will be held on Sunday, June 9th. And as always, it's a full day of family friendly events, music, food, and me. 
But don't go looking for all the details at the events section of our website just yet, because we'll be right back with three good books and more of your good phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from WLVT, PBS 39 in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from PBS 39 in beautiful Bethlehem, PA. I'm your host, beautiful Mike McGrath, and we're in the stretch right now, cats and kittens. In just a little bit, we'll get to the question of the week, in which I will introduce you to three books that you will definitely enjoy reading, and they'll explain a little bit about why our environment is in the shape it is in today. But before that, a couple more of your environmentally friendly phone calls at 833-727-9588. Bob, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. Hello, Bob. How are you doing, man? I'm doing well. And where is Bob doing well? Out here in Arizona, just a little bit outside of Phoenix. So this is the, this is the end of your gentle weather coming up, right? This is your you're about to dig a hole in the sand and hide there all summer long. It's getting close. Yeah, I'm, we're we're getting the hundreds peeking in here soon. Yeah, I was in Arizona for a couple of weeks in the winter time, and I have to say it was just glorious. But I've talked to people who were there in the summertime, and they did not have nearly as good a time. <laughs> yes, very true. It's a it's a beautiful climate in the winter, though, man, and beautiful scenery. What can I do for you? Well, I just had a few questions, kind of in regards to just a couple topics, but more in general, just the the idea of growing out here in the uh, you know very low humidity, uh, very dry, uh, low desert here in mm-hmm. Arizona. Um, you know, I'd love to to have a nice little patch of. Uh, Canada lilies, perhaps, or some kind of bulb flowers, but I know with uh, timing out here, with not necessarily having a frost date, um, that timing can be difficult sometimes. So I'm just not sure if you had any tips or anything like that in regards to perhaps bulbs or any other type of uh, growing flowers and such. Absolutely. First of all, canna lilies are not spring bulbs. They don't need a chilling. Um, Where you live, they will bloom possibly the whole year long, as long as you could keep them well watered. Um, during the summer months. But generally, my advice for people in extreme climates like yours is you treat the summer like I treat the winter. You don't try to grow anything in June, July, and August. But you can bring your tomatoes out in September when it finally starts to, you know, drop down a little bit. And then you can harvest all throughout what we laughingly call winter. And the, the same thing, you know, just Treat those three summer months like we treat our three winter months. Um, Don't try to have anything out in exposed ground, and you'll do fine. You can grow anything that we can grow with the exception of plants that have a chilling requirement. That is all of your true spring bulbs like daffodils and tulips. Um, Although in in Phoenix, you can buy bulbs that have been pre-chilled and you can put them in the ground and they'll bloom for you. And then they're safe in the ground uh, where they're native to in those godforsaken mountains in Turkey and Afghanistan. The summers are just as hot as as yours are, Um, but you'd have to artificially chill them um, after that to get them to bloom again, which is really nothing more serious than taking them out of the ground and putting them in the fridge um, for 16 weeks. Things like blueberries, raspberries, apples, peaches, all these wonderful fruits that require a chilling time, you can't grow those. But, of course, you can grow every citrus and every tropical plant on the face of the earth. Yeah, we're very lucky for that. (laughs) I'm going to make what seems like an odd suggestion, but if you actually follow what I'm going to say, um, I think you'll be pleased. Um, I, I think you'll learn a lot if you go online it go to um, go to that you know huge mega store that's named after a river, buy a used copy of a book called Save Three Lives. Okay. This is a book that I wrote with Bob Rodale back uh, circa 1990. Um, Bob and I finished the book before he was killed in a traffic accident in Moscow, 
and it is about growing food in the third world. Uh, but a lot of the book is devoted to things like water harvesting, how you can actually save your water from the few rains you get. You, techniques like tamping down areas um, to make your impenetrable soil even more impenetrable, and then running little rivulets so that when it rains, all the water comes in one direction towards something like a fig tree or your planting of canna lilies, something like that. And of course, we would recommend that you get a, a rain barrel. Um, but there's even evaporative techniques that can gain you gallons and gallons of water in uh, techniques that go back centuries. And you'll be able to buy this book for like five, ten dollars. And it will, it, you know, much of it is devoted towards this kind of extreme climate. Okay, definitely. I'll, I'll check it out for sure. Yeah, you uh, kind of along the lines. You, are you allowed where you live? Do you know? Are you allowed to harvest your gray water? Um, in my particular city, I believe so. Um, I, I think there's some cities in the valley here that um, that are some restrictions, but I believe in my, our city, I think we're okay to do that. Because the water that comes out of your bathtub and your dishwasher, um, I'm sorry, your clothes washer, the, the water that comes out of there, um, that should be fed right to plants outside just as it's coming out. You just do some plumbing, um, have the plumbing go out to... Um, a soaker hose situation. You can't hold gray water. You can't store it in a tank or it turns into black water. But as it's, right away. Okay. Yeah, as it's leaving your bathtub, your shower, your washing machine, um, this tremendous resource for water can be directed right outside. You could have a Garden of Eden. It would literally be an oasis that would get watered every time you washed yourself or your clothes. Great. Very nice. Um, kind of along the same line, uh, going back to the bulbs, in particular with the, the bulb, um, dealing with, uh, obviously I would have to amend the soil to uh, loosen it up a bit with our, our clay soils out here, but as far as it's just talking about, you know, three inches down, or should I be recommended to get a little bit deeper than that? Where you are, I would always bury as deep as possible and then mulch the soil surface um, with two inches of some organic matter covering where the roots are. You want to do everything you can to keep the roots cool. But you should be able to grow any of the tropical bulbs. And, you know, that's it, the summer blooming bulbs. That's a, a huge category. And for you, they might take a rest during the summer. They might go dormant. But you would have this great display around you nine months of the year. That's great. Thank you so much. All right, Bob, good luck. And um, boy, I tell you, I'd love to visit you in January or February. It's, it's great out here, Mike. I tell you, it's great. It is. All right. You take care, sir. As promised, it's time for the question of the week, whereby we will go back to the pages of some more of my favorite books with what we're calling the secret origins of lawns, pesticides, and the American forest canopy three more books to grow on. Well, this all started back in March when Aniki in Lake Leelanau, Michigan wrote, do you have a list of books that you like or a list of books by authors you've had on the show? I'm interested in diversity and like hearing what other gardeners are doing. Although initially reluctant, I realized that there were several books that had really entertained and informed me over the years. So I discussed three of them and thought, well, that was that. Well, the response was so enthusiastic, we're back with three more. Let's catalog them under Cautionary Tales. Our first book, American Green, The Obsessive Quest for the Perfect Lawn by Ted Steinberg, Norton and Company, 2006. Steinberg makes the same case for lawns as I do. Grass is a great way to manage rainwater, prevent erosion, sequester carbon, and produce oxygen. It's only when people obsessively chemicalize their lawns that the turf goes from being a great ground cover to a toxic nightmare. And that's indoors as well as out. Lawn chemicals get tracked into the house and trapped in the carpeting, putting at special risk the little kids who are crawling on those carpets. Diazinon, a popular lawn care chemical that was allowed for use up until 2002, notes Steinberg, has a chemical composition very similar to that of nerve gas. The history of lawns here is really fascinating. Steinberg notes that we as a species are probably drawn to making our landscapes as much like the savannas from which we emerged, low grasses punctuated by trees. 
but originally only the wealthy could do this. In England, a lawn was a sign of high status because it showed that you could afford enough servants to keep it cut. The Industrial Revolution changed all that, putting mowers in the hands of every man. And despite the expert advice that cautioned, don't think for a moment that you can have an English lawn in an American climate, everyone who rushed to the suburbs was told that you could, with the help of explosive fertilizers and poisonous pesticides. American Green is a meticulously researched work that clearly shows the two shades of the American lawn. The green color that lawn owners struggle to achieve and the monetary green of the massive lawn care industry that frustratingly prevents them from achieving that goal. Second up, American Pests, The Losing War on Insects from Colonial Times to DDT by James E. McWilliams, Columbia University Press, 2008. Early American farmers, notes McWilliams, were looked upon as, quote, a disorganized group of amateurs. But the solutions they pioneered included a spectrum of useful procedures from the ground up. Without access to chemical insecticides or professional entomologists, planters relied on their systematic interaction with the natural world. One early example, a 1794 essay contest seeking solutions to insect problems yielded this result. Quote, some years ago, the canker worm did great damage to the orchards in this Massachusetts town. But we found that orchards where sheep graze have universally been cleared of this worm. Another early beneficial creature to be recognized was one I rely on to keep my garden clean. A publication called The Southern Cultivator asked its readers, do all your trees have wren houses in them? If not, make them at once as every one of them will have a tenant, and every tenant will kill more insects than the farmer could do personally. Okay, yeah, sheep may be a little bit too much for most of you, but every gardener should welcome bug-eating birds to their landscape. The first half of this book is filled with tons of these kind of stories, but then we all know what happens. The first insecticides, noted by an early entomologist to be, quote, an insidious menace to the health of the people, start to gain traction. And although crop loss to insects increases with the introduction of each new poison, marketing and promises of easy cures lead the way. American pest is a cautionary tale that reminds us that the real solution to pest problems is to put down the sprayer and build some birdhouses. And our third book today is called American Canopy, Trees, Forests, and the Making of a Nation by Eric Rutko. It's by Schribner, 2012. Now, the old world was virtually deforested. All of the best trees for shipbuilding were gone or rare. And in the England of colonial times, it was all about the ships. Whoever had the biggest and best ships ruled the seas. And he who ruled the seas ruled the world. So imagine seeing the new world for the first time with its pristine forests from coast to coast, especially the tall pines. The heart of a sailing ship was her mast, which had to be tall, strong, lightweight, and flexible. American firs were stronger and lighter than the vanishing Balkan varieties, and because they had never before been harvested, many of them often reached 250 feet in height. That's 25 stories, or twice the height of the first skyscraper, notes Rutko. The story of how untrained colonists felled these trees without breaking them apart and then shipped them overseas is a reminder of all the things that mere humans could once do when working together. But of course, that's just the beginning. For hundreds of entertaining pages, Rutko chronicles how humans have since changed the face of the forests and questions whether we finally really developed the will to stop. And now, what you've all been waiting for, the winner of our first free book contest. It is Maggie Matwig of Virginia Beach. She's gonna receive the promised copy of Urban Forests. And because we received so many cool postcards, we created a new category the fan who mailed the card from furthest away. And that would be Christopher Cleary 
in Freiburg, Switzerland. Chris will receive a copy of Rosemary Gladstar's Beginner's Guide to Medicinal Herbs. So our first book club went so well, we're doing it again this week. So send us a postcard, postcard only, with your name and address to You Bet Your Garden, care of PBS 39 in Bethlehem, PA, and you will be entered into our next giveaway, which will be the classic Rodale gardening book, Perennials for Every Purpose by Larry Hodgson. And yes, we will also have a special category, but it won't be distance this time. Note, if you already sent in a postcard and you didn't win the first time, you do not have to re-enter. Your card will stay in the mix for the next drawing, okay? And thanks for all those great postcards. You guys are the best. Well, those sure were three good books for you to read now, wasn't they? Luckily for those of you who wish to read this over in detail, the Question of the Week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. Just click the link for the Question of the Week at our website, which is still and will forever be youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden Question of the Week, and you will always find the latest Question of the Week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to send the temp in here to Fahrenheit 451 if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 1-833-PBSWLVT. For real humans, that's 833-727-9588. Always takes me about a day to find the letters on my phone there. Or send us your email. You're tired, you're poor, you're wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. And when you email us, please, 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 please include your location. You'll find all of that contact information, plus answers to your garden questions, audio of this show, video of this show, audio and video of recent shows, and links to our internationally renowned podcast, all at our website, YouBetYourGarden.org. You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show and an hour-long public radio show and podcast, all produced and delivered to you weekly by WLVT, PBS 39 in Bethlehem, PA. Kenny Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our engineer is cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda McGrath. Check out her fine work at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Tavia Minnick not only works the phones, she collected all those postcards. Our website wonder is Anastasia Weckerly. Our audio editor is Jazzy Jonas Bowen. Our video editors are Concrete Kelly Hurd and Judicious Jake Boyer. Our floor manager, John DeSantis, is exceptionally well-read, at least if you count comic books. Black and white and red all over is our harassed and harried director, Javier Diaz. Regal Ron Ruscha is our director of underwriting. Our marketing madman is Jaunty Jim McDonald. Our chief techno officer is Andy Cummins. Sack the Tack is in the house. Our CEO, Tim Fallon just sent a memo pointing out that if the credits on this show get any longer, there won't be time for an actual show. He's just mad his postcard didn't get picked. And he's late for a meeting. I'm your oh-so-literate host, Mike McGrath. Keep those postcards coming, and I'll see you again next week.